Hey, good morning again, everybody. Welcome to another Bible study in the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. By the Apostle Paul. And he's writing from prison. Uh, This is review, by the way. So if you're tired of hearing it, you could maybe skip ahead if you're listening to a recording. Um, Paul's writing from prison. He has faced uh, enormous obstacles in the ministry that God has for him. And yet he is rejoicing. He is full of joy because he knows that the mission is far bigger than him in his own life and his own circumstances. So, for example, he himself is in prison, which means he's not at liberty to go plant churches or go visit ones that he has planted or to defend himself against those who are slandering him. He's not free to do any of that. Yet because he is in prison, the gospel is going forward and reaching all the way through all the guards and up into Caesar's household. Uh, People are starting to preach with greater boldness because Paul is in prison. Uh, He may go to see Jesus through, uh, through his death, if he is indeed going to get the death penalty. Uh, So Paul's rejoicing. He's able to rejoice. He's able to see through beyond his circumstances to something greater. And he's writing to his friends, the Philippians, to encourage them to rejoice, to not let his circumstances get them down. And so he's he's talked to them um, in chapter 2 about their response to tasting and seeing that the Lord Jesus is good, responding to his, his encouragement and his love by not being conceited or, or partaking of rivalries with other people, competing for goods, competing to have needs met, but rather to take on the mind of Christ who humbled himself, who was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Why? Because he was looking to the interests of others above himself. And Paul says to imitate Christ, to work out our salvation together with him, And not to grumble and complain, because it's not about us anyway. And then he talks about his friends, Timothy and and Epaphroditus, who who was somebody who was actually sent to Paul from Philippi to minister to his needs while he's in prison. Paul says, I'm going to send them back. Paul himself is looking out for their interests above his own. And then last time in chapter 3, Uh, We talked about how, once again, Paul has this one thing in his mind, his union with Christ. Jesus is everything for Paul. And he's starting to combat those who sound very Christian, sound very pious, by saying, hey, if, if Jesus was a Jew, and if you act more Jewish, you will be more like Jesus. If you obey all the feasts and the fasts and get circumcised and, um, and do all the things that Jews do, You'll be even closer to Jesus. And Paul says, I did all that and I was so far from him. The one thing, the one thing that's most important above all is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. And being so united to him, both in suffering and death and also in the resurrection. That's what Paul is after. Now, I'm, we ended in the middle of that thought in the last uh, the last teaching ended right in the middle of that. 
So I want to actually read, read through from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way through the, to the beginning of chapter 4 because it's, it's all one thought, but I'm really going to focus on verses 12 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But in order to, to really understand that, he hasn't broken into a new thought. I'm going to read the whole thing. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, tr- of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in this, my beloved. That ends that thought. So we're going to go, we're going to back up to verse 12. Uh, Paul has said that knowing Christ is the most important thing on his or anyone else's agenda. If Christ truly is who Paul says he is, the one who has been given the name above every name, 
the one to whom every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And he wants to know me. There's nothing more important than that. In Paul's mind. Would that that was the case with us. You know, what if somebody really, really important gave you a phone call? I would, you know, pastors use this all the time. If the president called you, you would pick up. And, you know, with the last few presidents, you know, that, that may not be the case so much anymore. But there's somebody out there who you look up to, who you highly respect. Who, if they called you and said, hey, I want to have lunch with you today, you would drop your agenda and say, yes. I meant, hey, I want to come have lunch with you. I want to spend some time with you. You would, you would say, you would be on the phone with people saying, can't make it to the meeting, can't make it here, can't do that, I've got a meeting with so-and-so. So take it whoever, whoever you, uh, you I, if it's Michael Jordan, you know, or, or Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt, I don't know, um, whoever it is for you, Tim Keller, you know, if you have like a, a sort of Christian, modern Christian heroic personality or something like that, calls you on the phone and says, I, I want to be with you, you drop your agenda. That's what Paul is saying. With Jesus, he's so enraptured, so captured by him that he says, Lord, your agenda is mine. Whatever you want, that's what I'm going to do. I want to be with you. And then in verse 12, he says, uh, he says, in this union with Christ, so, so backing up to verse 11, in this union with Christ, he wants to experience the resurrection as Christ has. You know, you can imagine Paul is really longing for this as he's usually been beaten and whipped. Like his body's probably hurt and he's probably had bones crushed. You know, he was stoned at one point. They thought he was dead. And somehow he, he lived. Paul, his body is in turmoil. And the older you get, my observation is, not necessarily from my experience, although I have to say my body does not heal as quickly as it used to. But my observation of generations ahead of me is that the older you get, the more you long for that resurrection, the more you want to uh, have a new body. So Paul says he's longing for the resurrection um, from the dead that comes through knowing Jesus. And he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me, me his own. Remember a few, a few teachings back, back in, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and 13, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you. Uh, to will and to work according to his own good pleasure. Remember, one of the things we talked about there is the three aspects of salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The technical, term, uh, the technical terms in theological jar- jargon are, you know, we are justified by faith, we are sanctified through the working of the Holy Spirit, and we will be glorified when it's come to, to its completion. So uh, what Paul's referring to here when he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
What he's talking about is that glorification, that we will be saved aspect. He's saying, I'm not there yet. I'm, he says, I'm striving for this. I'm working for this. I'm longing for this. I'm making this my goal. And he's saying, I'm not there yet. I don't want you to think that I've already made it there. I don't want you to think that you can make it there. Because it's not going to happen by your own efforts. It's not going to happen right now. In this being saved category. So he says, uh, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see once again, he, what Paul is doing is he's pressing on, but he isn't striving. He's saying Jesus has already made me his own. That's a done deal. I'm not striving to make sure that this happens because I don't have the confidence that he will do it. He's saying he's already done it, and that's why I'm striving. See, motivation is everything. Motivation is everything. In the Bible, we have a lot of verses that talk about obedience. There's a lot of talk about obedience. And last time, I, I, last teaching, I talked about how you view God changes the way you live. And if you view God primarily as a cop, whose primary concern is your obedience, or, or as a parent whose reputation stands or falls on, on your behavior, so they're constantly lording it over you out of fear of their own reputation, you're going to look at God the wrong way. Now, in saying all that, I hope I did not... Uh, push you too far and make you think that God does not care about our behavior. Of course he does. Just as parents care about uh, our children's behavior and not simply because that reflects on us. We care about their behavior because, um, because they will become this distorted and twisted and grotesque human being. We want them to flourish and be beautiful and to shine. And that's what God wants for us. But his primary concern, God's primary concern is for us. Not, for, not primarily for himself. It's for us. He's other-oriented. And because he's oriented towards us, he's wanting to give and give and give and give to us the salvation that we long for. So our working, our working this out, Paul's, Paul's pressing on to make it his own, is not out of the fear that God is going to withhold it unless we press on far enough. It's not as though God is saying, well, you prove to me that you really mean it by being obedient, and then I'll give it to you. That's not how it works. Paul says, Christ Jesus has already made me his own. The motivation matters. I could buy my wife flowers because I've been thinking about her and I love her and I want to bring a smile to her face. Or I could buy my wife flowers because I know this is what it's going to take to keep the peace. Do you think that those two motivations don't matter to my wife? Do you think she only cares about whether or not the flowers show up? You bet your sweet bippy she cares about, about motivation. And that's how the Lord is. The Lord cares about 
the heart. You can do all kinds of external stuff while hiding your true motivation. That is called hypocrisy. And the Lord hates it. It isn't a fake it till you make it game. There are some in some streams of Christianity who say that, who say, well, you got to just keep striving and striving, fake it until you make it. If you, if you fake it for long enough, you'll actually, your heart will, your heart will change. And there is a, a measure of truth to that, but it's not because you're faking it. Sometimes you, your affections in your heart, your tastes change, your, your affections, the things you love, you, you grow to love something more and more by your exposure to it. Sometimes, sometimes you don't. I've been faking liking broccoli and kale for over a decade. And I can tell you right now, I do not enjoy, I do not find appetizing the taste of either. And you might say, oh, well, you just need to put oil on it and and bake it in there just right. And I would say, yes, but actually what's going on is what I love is oil. I love things being fried. That's the flavor I like. But the kale itself, the broccoli itself, as it is, does not taste good to me. So all that to say, motivation matters. And the Lord is after our heart. He wants us to be motivated by the love he already has for us. We love because he first loved us. He wants us to see him loving us in our sin and to respond to that love he has for us with joy and love in return. He wants that to be the motive. Okay, we're getting too far afield here in one verse. Okay, verse 13, brothers. This, of course, means brothers and sisters. Don't forget that. I do not consider that I have made it my own. He says it the second time now. He's, he hasn't made it yet. He's, he's working towards it. He's pressing on towards it. And he's saying, but I still haven't made it my own. But he says, now pay attention. But one thing I do. Catch this. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Echoes here of Psalm 27. One thing I seek, Lord, this one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. Paul's making an allusion to that. This one thing he's after, forgetting about whatever it is behind me, saying my past may have shaped me, but it does not define me. It does not define my future. And straining on, straining forward to what lies ahead. No, I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward to what lies ahead. And what is that? The upward call. The goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul wants more than anything? He wants to be faithful to the end. He wants to get there. He wants to be in the presence of the Lord. Remember back 
in chapter 1 where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's making the Lord Jesus his everything. It's the one thing. The one thing. Jesus said when he was here, blessed are the pure in heart. And to have purity of heart is to desire one thing. To have pure gold is for it to be 100% gold. And that's almost impossible. Do you you realize that's almost impossible to come by? Even when you get gold jewelry, it'll say like 99.95% pure or something like that. There's actually nothing in this world that is truly pure, without alloy, not even 0.0001%. Sin has stained everything. But there is a pure coming up. Paul is doing everything he can to narrow his motivations, to purify them down to this one thing. Moving on towards Christ, moving towards Jesus, towards Jesus, towards Jesus, towards Jesus. That's what his life is about. And it is true that if Jesus is at the core, at the center of the universe, if his name is the name above every name, if every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, ultimately, if he is the sun, the center around, with every, around which everything orbits, the most valuable use of our time and our life is to come to him, is to pursue him. Don't waste your life pursuing other things. Don't waste your life on other stuff. We have so many other things that grab our attention, right? That draw us in, whether it's the the latest bit of technology that has the power to get more things done, which will supposedly make our life easier. But in reality, what happens is then the expectations on your life simply go up. So then you're expected to do more than you're currently doing, so it doesn't get easier. Whether it's the latest gadget, the latest technology, whether it's fashion, whether it's intellectual fashion, or actually what people are wearing, whether it is accolades, jobs, fame, popularity, whatever it is. Don't let it get in the way of the Lord. Make him the one thing the one thing of your life, pursuing him. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Remember all the way back in chapter two where he said, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus. Here we go, think. Saying, use your mind. Those of us who are mature, let's think this way. Let's set our minds on Jesus. Set your mind on him. Think this way. He's going to say this here in in verse 17. He's going to say it again. 
He says, think, let us, those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true uh, to, what, to what we have attained. So he's leaving the door open saying like, well, you know, you can debate this, um, you know, but, but God's going to show you the right way eventually, meaning his way. <laughs> so says those who are mature are going to think this way. And if somebody disagrees with me, well, you know, they'll come around. <laughs> and in verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. Once again, remember chapter two. Imitating Christ as one who did, did not put his interests above others, but put others' interests above his own. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Once again, keep your eyes. Think this way. What we do, where you put your mind, do you, know, do you realize that you do have some degree of freedom in where you put your mind and where you put your eyes? There's a sense in which you, you do have the choice. Until you give yourself over to whatever an affection is, you no longer have freedom. See, our hearts long for things. Our hearts are attracted to things. We find some things desirous and other things repulsive. And whatever things we find desirous, we turn our eyes and our minds towards those things. And it doesn't matter if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Very often, it's either, uh, very often, even if it is a good thing, our hearts have a way of twisting it and turning it into an ultimate thing. Once again, a competitor with the one thing. Insofar as you are able, insofar as you have the capacity to weigh out your affections, hold whatever it is that's, that's capturing your attention, that's capturing your mind. Go back to chapter 2 and look at Jesus. Go back to the Gospels and read Jesus. And pull out your affection for him and your affection for whatever, whatever this other thing is. And say, man, my heart is divided. And set your affections, set your mind, set your eyes on Jesus. Put them on him. You know, the, the more you set your mind and the more you set your eyes on something other than him, the more you're going to awaken and strengthen your affection for that other thing and weaken your affection for the Lord. Look at the example, Paul says, that you have in him. Look at the example of Jesus. Follow them. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, who's Paul talking about here? He, he might be talking about the Judaizers that he was mentioning earlier in chapter 3. Those who glorying in their shame, meaning glorying in their own righteousness. Having uh, their God as their belly, 
and they're, um, what is it, having their mindset on earthly things. They're, they're focused on, on keeping the rules, on keeping Torah. Could be them. He could just mean the, the carnal world around them. You know, the, the Roman Empire was, was not a place of virtue. <laughs> it was a place of debauchery. Perhaps not unlike our own world. And Paul says, even with tears, even with tears, there are people who live. They live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Once again, you can look at the world around you. And there's a a, a certain degree of pressure that's placed on us living in this world to conform, to, to be like the world around us. And nobody has to come to you and say, hey, uh, you want to go up to the cannabis dispensary? No one has to come up to you, to you and say, hey, what do you think about human sexuality and marriage? You don't have to have people actually pressuring you. It's just the way the, way the world is itself, the, these systems, these ways that, that, that uh, society is, they apply pressure to conform to a certain kind of norm. Paul is saying, don't give in to that. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Here here it is again. We... Friends, we live on this earth. You live in a town, a city. You live in a world that has turned its back on God. And we ourselves were at one time part of that world, doing exactly the same thing. As Paul says in Ephesians, dead in our transgressions and our trespasses and sins. We were sons of, of, disobedient and, uh, of disobedience and children of wrath, Paul says. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are not of this world any longer. And we are awaiting a Savior, Jesus Christ, who's going to transform us. He's going to transform this lowly body, this one that's frail and and prone to decay and, and prone to taking us away from the Lord to distraction prone to choosing lesser things, lesser goods over greater goods. Jesus is going to come and he's going to transform us. It is a good thing for us to seek to, uh, seek to have a more just world that we live in. That is, that is a good thing to do. But do not think that in doing so, you're making this world any more a citizen of heaven. You actually aren't. You aren't a citizen. Don't try and make the world more comfortable for you to sit in so that you can be a citizen of this world. We're waiting for a savior. Jesus didn't save us so that we could save his world. He's going to do that. That is still his divine prerogative, not ours. 
the Savior is going to come and he's going to transform this world. He's going to do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. It's an unfortunate chapter break because it's continuing the thought. Uh, Paul says, So, therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. Why? Well, because the world, you, we are expatriates. We are citizens of another country. Some of you listening to this, you might be in the United States, but you're a citizen of somewhere else. And you feel it. Every single day you wake up and you know, this isn't my home. I've been, uh, I've had two short stints, like three, three month-ish stints in other countries. And in one of those, I was literally the only white person that I saw, the only European descent person that I saw. Everyone else was part of the culture. This was in India. It was part of a different culture. And every morning when I woke up, I knew that I was an alien, that I was not a citizen of that world. And they were kind and generous and welcoming, amazing. I've even thought of moving there because of how amazing they were, how hospitable they were. But every day I knew by the rhythms of life, by the ways that people talk, by the ways that they think, by the way things go, that it was not my home. I was a citizen of somewhere else. To maintain your identity and to not conform, you have to stand firm. And that's what Paul says right here. Stand firm in this. Stand firm in this. The pull of the flesh is strong. The pull of the devil and the world are also strong. Stand firm. He said this back in chapter 1, verse 27. He said, stand firm. Why does he have to keep saying this? Because we don't. Because we forget. How are you going to stand firm? By doing what he just said, by making Jesus the one thing. Yes, I know the point is the same as the last sermon. Make Jesus your one thing. Is there anything else more worthy of your attention and your time and your life? Is there really? My friends, I am ashamed to even proclaim this because I am so terrible at it. But I want it. I want it. There's a part of me that wants to just... Give up, move out into the woods, give up on society. Join a monastery or something like that so that I can simply just adore Jesus all day, every day. But God has also made us to live in this world. So the challenge, it's a challenge to make Jesus the one thing. The one thing your life is about. Even Martin Luther, he was a monk. He said, we've created the perfect environment, the perfect system. And still my mind veers and wanders left and right. And still I'm distracted. And still I choose lesser loves. It's not the perfect environment that's going to get you there. You've got to go to Jesus. 
We've got to keep seeking him. Say, Lord, I need this gift. I need you to give me the gift of making you my one thing. I need you to make me pure in heart. I need you to make me pure in heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make me pure in heart. You know that this is the deepest longing of my soul and of those who can hear my voice. I know that this is their deepest longing as well. I pray that you would pour your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that you become our one thing. You're the one thing that we live for. And we know that we're citizens of your kingdom, not of this world. And we can stand firm. Do that for us, Jesus, today and every day. In your sweet name, amen.